The following content is brought to you as part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County. In this six-week study, we will be looking at how Jesus prayed, how He taught us to pray, and put it into action as we pray together weekly. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Alrighty. Well, welcome. It's good to see everybody. We could just have social time tonight. Uh, that's fine. It's good. Um, so this is a short one. We're only going to do this six weeks. Um, you know, we uh, we just want when we pick a study, we we look at this one. We looked at the calendar. And we were like, well, we probably need to start after Easter. They're like, we probably need to end it before June. People start going on vacations and stuff. So ended up being six weeks but you know it's perfect it what as i've been outlining it i think six weeks is going to be a really rich study um for us and so tonight i'm I'm just going to be really upfront. tonight is big time introduction um in fact i i am not diving into content much tonight at all because i think there's so much that needs to be said on the front on the front end of this. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about culture. We're going to talk a lot about why prayer is hard. And that's kind of where we're going to go tonight. And I'd love to get some interaction from you all, questions from you all, um, because I don't know about you, but prayer is one of the things that I consistently just struggle with. I feel like nothing in my life aids me naturally to do it. Like there's always a war being fought. And if I relax at all, it easily gets pushed aside. If I quit resisting, you know, it's easy to just approach life as just a list of all the things I need to get done. Um, And I've, I've fought that battle ever since I've been a Christian. I mean, it's just always been a battle. Um, you know, I, I have my habits, I have my my um, my rhythms in my life. A lot of times, those are good, but like I still see this this need to to pray without ceasing, to kind of live with this constant awareness of my dependence upon God. That's what I want. Uh, and so, what are we doing? So, I'm, I I guess I should say this on the front end. So, this is called Kingdom Prayer. And starting next week, we're going to be diving into the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts because Luke's Gospel emphasizes prayer more than any. And Acts is part two of his Gospel. And so you see prayer being really focused on in the ministry of Jesus, in the teachings of Jesus, and then in the life of the church, it's carried over and it's actually transformed a little bit uh, in light of the cross and resurrection. Uh, And so we're going to be looking at Jesus as a prayer. That's next week. Um, How did Jesus pray? The praying king. 
Uh, and then we're going, the, the week after that, we're going to look at his teachings on prayer. So how did Jesus teach us to pray? So if you want to get in your mind, we're going to look at his example, and then we're going to look at his teachings. And then we're going to do a couple different things topically. Uh, the next week, we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the church's mission in prayer. And and really heavy in Acts those two weeks. And then the last week, I don't know what we're going to do, so I just called it Let's Pray. So we're going to pray. Uh, so that's what we're going to do on the last week. We're going to apply. And let me say this too. We're going to pray every week. Uh, and so uh, I'm, my goal on the content weeks is to leave it between 30 and 45 minutes and then give us time to pray together um after that so that's where we're going um you don't have you won't have any homework other than pray you can obviously read luke and acts as many times as you want it's great um but yeah so tonight the title of tonight is called our struggle with prayer (laughs) and so this is what what i want us to talk about tonight um So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You. Lord, I thank You for gathering this group of people tonight to talk about prayer. Um, Lord, I think sometimes it's even tempting to just talk about prayer a lot and not to even pray. And Lord, I pray that You would spare us from that tendency. Lord, show us just how vital prayer is. And Lord, I pray that You would motivate us to pray not by guilt, not by some type of artificial historical standard of how many hours a day our spiritual heroes prayed or whatever, but Lord, that our motivation to pray would come from the Gospel of Your grace, Lord, that You have saved us You have brought us into a relationship with You in which we cry, Abba, Father. So Lord, we pray to You as our Father. And Lord, You delight when we turn to You as needy children. And You delight in joyfully showing mercy to us and responding and granting the requests of our heart. Lord, I pray that I just pray that You would rejuvenate our prayer lives. Lord, that You would, if any of us are in a dry season, Lord, that You would uh, just send Your Spirit to enliven us and um, make us excited to pray. Make us long to pray. Make us, Lord, where we can't wait to to sit down, to, to fall down on our knees before You. Um, Lord, we we pray as we pray often for revival. Lord, we want to see revival in our community, in our church. We want to see it in the world. We want to see it among the nations. Lord, we know it starts here with Your people on their knees before You. And so, Lord, I pray that You would help us to just be dependent upon You all the time as we seek to be obedient to the mission You've called us to. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. Have any of you ever heard of a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace? Great. Um, so David Foster Wallace was a a writer, um, very kind of cultural, um, but committed, ended up committing suicide, but had a very perceptive way of kind of describing the world, describing reality. He wrote fiction, he wrote nonfiction, he wrote essays. Uh, I see him quoted a lot um, because of his way with words, and he had just an ability to to, to pinpoint problems. Uh, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, he didn't claim to be a Christian. Um, but he said a lot of things that Christians agreed with. Um, and he gave a commencement address at a college one time. And he started the commencement address off with this little parable, okay? He said, there are two young fish swimming along who happen to meet an older fish. The older fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? The two fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and asks, what in the heck is water? Now, that you may be like, what in the world are you doing? Why are you telling us that? And my point, and the point of the parable, is that a fish living in water doesn't know they're in water because they've never known anything else. And that's kind of the whole point. And I wanted you to think about that with me to start off with because I think that it's important that we, the best we can, try to see the water that we're swimming in, right? Like, it's really hard to do. It's hard to objectively analyze the way we interpret the world because we don't have anything else to compare it to, right? Like, like we see the world and we have all these assumptions about the world, but we've never seen the world any differently, you know? So we kind of just assume that the way we see the world is reality. Like, this is just reality. I see what's real. I see what's right there in front of me. It's obvious. You can see what's right there in front of you. We all kind of see it the same way. And I don't think that's true, first of all. And I think that we have to do work to try our best to see it differently. One one other parable, um, C.S. Lewis. He had an essay called Transposition. Uh, and it's kind of complex, but I, I got at least one thing out of it. Uh, and he was describing trying to have a conversation with a two-dimensional figure who lives on the plane of a two-dimensional drawing. So just imagine like a drawing on a piece of paper, and you're having a conversation with the character on the drawing. That the, the, it's a sentient being. And so they're talking back to you, and you're trying to explain to them that you occupy a world that has three dimensions, right? But the two-dimensional figure can't believe that you do that. And so Lewis describes this parable and he draws it out. This conversation goes back and forth. And so eventually you, you, you try to prove your point and you point to a drawing and on the drawing that he's living on, there's a road. And you say, look, there's a road right there. That's what I'm talking about. There's a road. And, and he looks at it and goes, that's not a road. That's a triangle, right? You think about a road, how it would look on a drawing to try to make it look three-dimensional. 
And, and so eventually the, the two-dimensional being says, you keep on telling me of this other world and its unimaginable shapes, which you call solid, but isn't it very suspicious that all the shapes which you offer me as images or reflections of the solid ones turn out on inspection to be simply the old two-dimensional shapes of my own world as I have always known it? My point is that we are a lot like the two-dimensional being. We have a hard time seeing reality that God tells us is there because we have a lot of assumptions about the way the world works that we've picked up and absorbed and just sort of imbibed uncritically. And what I want to do tonight is, is sort of question some of those assumptions. I, want, I believe some of those assumptions are, are some of the reasons why we struggle so much when it comes to things like prayer. I believe that there are unique aspects of our modern world that make certain aspects of the life of faith that God calls us to live very difficult. And one of those things that's very difficult because of the assumptions of our world is prayer. I believe that modern life casts a spell over our perspective that causes spiritual longing to feel unnatural and strange, right? I don't know. I mean, let me just stop for a second and ask you, does that make sense of your own experience? Does it feel strange to you that that assumptions of the modern life have a way of casting a spell over our perspective that makes spiritual longing seem unnatural and strange. Is it easy to be a Christian in the world? That's my question. Are there things in the world like things that are morally neutral. Okay, let's just say that you just live in the world. We're not, you're not like living in rebellion even. You're just living in the world. You're on Netflix all day. You're on Facebook all day. right? We'd say those are neutral things, right? Maybe you would disagree with me. I don't know. Just say they're neutral. If you, and if you just live in this world and just do the things everybody else is doing, are, is that going to help you live the kind of life that God calls us to live or is it going to make it harder? to live the kind of life that God calls us to live? That's the question. Okay? But would you also agree that those things are not necessarily wrong? So that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about the water. <laughs> this is the, the world we occupy. The water of our environment, we don't analyze it a lot, because we kind of we we just assume that this is the way it's always been, and I think that's a huge mistake. So here here's what we're gonna do. Um, I'm starting this study tonight here, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna go further than this, I promise. Um, because I want us to sort of analyze the water that God asks us to live in, and what it's gonna take to be faithful in the world that we that we live in. You know, I've never met a person, you tell me if you have, I've never met a person who says, you know what, I've really got a grip on this prayer thing. Have you? 
Okay. Have you ever in your life felt like, yes, finally, my whole Christian life, I've, I've done it. I can pray. I pray like I think God wants me to pray. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced seasons in your life where you're like, am I even a Christian? Because I don't feel like praying at all. It's hard to admit, but have you ever been there? Okay. I think, I mean, I have. Like, I'm supposed to want to pray, right? Like, there's the Spirit living in me. (laughs) You know, like, I don't want to pray. I just want to uh, scroll my phone right now for three hours or whatever, you know? Like, I just want to busy myself with something. I just want to do anything but be quiet before God. You've been there before, too? Okay. I'm not the only one. That's good. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. And so, all we're doing tonight is analyzing what it is about ourselves and about our world that makes prayer so difficult. And so, the first thing I want us to do is these are some of the things that I think make prayer hard in every age. So, I don't mind if you... So, you you can spoil it. If if I were going to ask you what makes prayer hard, what would be the things that you said to answer that question? Okay. Okay. Busyness. Okay, so just sort of like this desire to do it right and this feeling that maybe you're not doing it right and if you're a perfectionist, then you're just not going to do it. You're just going to be like, ah, I, I'm, I'm not doing it right. I've, I've felt that before. Okay. Okay. Yep. Anything else? Huh? Distractions. Distractions everywhere. Okay. Okay. Mhm. Yeah, and there's no audible voice. At least I've not had that yet. It'd be great, you know, but Hasn't happened. Good. Okay. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, my stepmom used to always say, don't pray for patience. God will make you wait. <laughs> Some of that Southern Pentecostal theology. Um, but um, yeah, so, but that's a funny way to say what you're saying. But yeah, I mean, if you, if you pray for maturity or whatever, right? Like what does the Bible say how do we mature as Christians? It's usually through trial, right? I don't want to go through trial. I'm not going to pray for growth. And <laughs> we don't want that. All right. Okay. Yeah. Good. So, yes to all of that. So, I had only come up with three. So, these are the three that I had come up with today. Um, let me say first off, one that we didn't mention that I think is at the heart of a lot of it. Okay? This isn't always the case. I don't think that it that every time someone says they struggle with prayer that this is true. But I think that this is true a lot. And that is the issue of self-dependence and pride. I think this is actually a bigger deal than we think. And maybe sometimes we may call our struggle with prayer or something else, but it may really be this. Um, so, so we have like the, w- scriptural references to this. So Jesus wrote seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And one of those letters in chapter 3, I think it's the church at Laodicea. Is that the one that's neither hot nor cold? It's lukewarm? That's the one. And in 3.17 of Revelation, Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so that's kind of Jesus's. um it's, I wouldn't call it a condemnation. It's a warning, really, is what it is. It's a warning to His church. He says, you guys are living like you have everything. You're living like you don't need anything. Like you're rich. Like everything you have. And, and really, church, I mean, could that not be the church of America? Right? Like we sort of are that. We're the richest generation of people in the history of the world. Like that's true. I don't even if you say, well, my personal bank account wouldn't show that. Listen, this culture that we live in, we have everything. Um, And so that's a huge thing. Now, what is prayer? This is really important. You know, I I think that we've got to define it in some way. And there's a lot of different ways to define it. You know, we could talk about very simply it's communication with God, which is true. That's exactly what prayer is. Prayer is just at the base level talking to God. John Calvin in in his book The Institutes of Christian Religion, he has a whole chapter on prayer, a whole section, and he calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. I think that's really helpful because what he's saying when he says the chief exercise of faith, what he's saying is that prayer is the primary way that true faith expresses itself. It's kind of natural, right, when someone says, well, I want to believe the gospel. And we say, well, 
let me teach you how to pray and express your faith to God. Like the faith is just a natural way to express your faith. Our prayer is a natural way to express your faith. It, it's the acting out of a faith. And, and you see this in Scripture. It's really interesting. One of my favorite letters of Paul is one that gets overlooked. Um, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 um, Paul is at the beginning, he's telling this church about this huge trial that they went through. Um, and he says this, he says, for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So just stop for a moment and listen to what Paul's saying. He says, we went through a trial so intense that we thought we were dying. Okay? And then he says this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Why did God, Paul says, why did God let us go through this trial to bring us to this recognition that we need Him, that we need to rely on Him, that He raises the dead, to put faith in Him? And he says, he finishes the thought like this, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And then look at how he ends this thought. He says, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So, so this whole experiment, this whole experience that Paul goes through, lands him in dependence upon God, and he now turns that as a lesson to the church on how we should pray too. Trusting God is expressed through prayer. John 15.5, we just went over this on a Sunday morning. It's the, the, the vine and the branches. Abide in me, Jesus says. And he says, for apart from me, what is it? You know how it ends? You can do nothing. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So bef before because this is one of the things I think we do. I think we immediately go, I'm a, I'm a bad prayer. I'm struggling to pray consistently. And we, we immediately begin looking for a new method. I need a new way to pray. I need a book on prayer. I need a, a better discipline. I, I need to figure out a trick. I need an app on my phone. I need to set up reminders. Something's wrong structurally in my life. We immediately turn to those things. And we forget that before it's a discipline problem, it's a faith problem. Right? But we've got to examine that first. That maybe the issue is that I don't see myself as a needy person. Maybe the issue is that I don't believe apart from Jesus I can do nothing. Maybe I think I can still do a lot on my own. And let me tell you, I, I honestly believe that if, if fundamentally, if we're not convinced that, that, that we need Jesus desperately every day, every moment, I don't think we will ever have a life of prayer apart from that. That's where it starts. 
And so before jumping into the new regiment, you know, the new Instagram post that tells you exactly how to pray or whatever, let's examine. Let's remember God's faithfulness. Let's remember what Christ has done for us. Let's examine our heart for ways that maybe we're trusting in ourselves and let's repent if there's unbelief there and then let's with joy turn to the promises of God in Christ. I believe that the promises of God are ultimately what is going to energize our prayer life when we know that we have a God who has made promises to us. All kinds of promises to us. So thoughts on that uh, or questions about that before I move on? Just curious. If anybody has anything to add or say. Going once. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to study Jesus' prayer life. That's one of the reasons we're going to do that next week because I think you'll be... I think it's very instructive for us that like He's praying all the time. He's praying in in the Gospel of Luke in particular. Luke really paid attention to Jesus' prayer life. And Luke shows Jesus praying at every significant moment of his life and ministry. Every significant moment. All the main turning points. Before any decision was made. Before any huge thing that he was about to endure, we see Jesus pray. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, here's God incarnate calling out to his Father constantly. Modeling dependence. But I don't really... See, I think there's a tendency, and this is where I want us to be careful, like, I think there's a tendency for us to look at Jesus and go, well, He was just teaching us how to do that. And I don't think that's true. I think He was dependent. Like, He felt in His humanity His neediness. And so, this was desperate prayer. Like, think about Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where, and we'll look at that episode, but where He's you know, sweating drops of blood and um, his disciples are asleep and he's all alone and he's saying, God, if you would take this, please take it. I mean, yeah, he's he was needy. All right, so that's the first reason. Unbelief, lack of faith, self-reliance, pride. You can say it in a lot of different ways. Um, the second one is one you, a lot of you mentioned distraction and busyness. Now we're talking now about things that people in every age have dealt with when it comes time to pray. These are hindrances that everyone in every generation has faced. We are not, believe it or not, we are not the first generation of people to be distracted. I know that sounds crazy, um, but we're not. And and we know that 
because if you, I mean, let's look at one episode. I actually, if you remember, I preached this uh, back in January, the Martha and Mary episode. Uh, now, this isn't about prayer per se, but it is about communion with Christ. And it's kind of linked. You know, this is relational um, relationship with, with God that that is the, the issue here. And so now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha, this is in Luke 10, 38 through 42, if you're, or 41, if you want to know the reference. Uh, they went on their way. Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So you've got two sisters you can imagine the scene like this happens in my house all the time. Why am I the only one cleaning up? You know that this is what's going on. And why am I the only one serving? And Martha is the one doing the serving. Mary is the one sitting at Jesus' feet, prioritizing the communion that she has with him by faith. So there, there's that whole whole thing there sitting at his feet listening to his teaching that's kind of what we're doing when we pray right it's communication back and forth and jesus says she's chosen the good thing now lay this over my life because this is the struggle that i experience constantly the pressing calendar right there's something you got to do you got a due date you got a you got a paper due probably you got to be somewhere. You got something at work. You got, right? It's constant. We got this. We've got that. And it's easy for life to just become this repetition of trying to get, keep all the plates spinning at one time, right? And where does communion with Christ fit if your life is just activity like that? You tell me. Is it easy to prioritize? What's interesting is I'm talking to a bunch of people who are at all kinds of different stages of life. And so I'm really curious where what your perspective is. Yeah. Yeah, I think the scheduled routine and having a time every day where this is a priority is a, a very helpful thing. Necessary, even. And 6 a.m. is great because that's before all the craziness starts usually.
Yep. Like I've done that. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've got to be make sure that we're upfront about from the beginning in all this is that I don't think God is ever looking at our feeble attempts to pray and going, come on, that's pathetic. You know, like I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would lead us to see that that's how he's responding to it. That every indication in the Bible is that he's saying, yes, pray. He, he is delighting in your distracted prayer. He is delighting in your five minutes of rushed prayer. He is delighted when you feel like you're on the mountaintop in prayer, which do you ever feel that way? <laughs> he delights in all of it. And no, and I just I always I'm going to probably say something like this every week because because I do think we should strive to 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 grow in this area, but we should not do so because we feel his displeasure and guilt that we're so pathetic. <laughs> like I don't think that's the motive, um, but he you know he he's there for us, and then the 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 greatest promise of all is that we have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf so that, listen, even if you don't pray today, you're being prayed for. Think about that. Even if you completely forget, let's say that you, you're in a dry spell and you don't pray, Jesus is still praying for you. So in no way does this like our faith, or our salvation rest on this or God's affections towards us change but yeah we want to grow so there's that tension and then the 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 third thing that i would say we get straight out of scripture is our own limitations and this is kind of goes with the distraction and busyness a little bit but i'm primarily thinking about the disciples on the Mount of Olives, and maybe you've been here before. I remember when I worked at UPS, I used to try to get up. I mean, I got up at 3 a.m. to go to work, and I would say, I'm going to get up at 2.30 and pray. And I would go, like, you know, get my Bible out and sit down on the couch, and just I'd be asleep in five seconds, you know. And, I, you know, I always would just feel so terrible about that. And, and at UPS at that time for me was a very dark place to work. Uh, and I remember just how desperately I needed that time to get my mind right, and, and yet I couldn't stay awake. And I was just like the disciples in Gethsemane, you know, where Jesus is saying, "Why?" well, He says in Luke twenty two forty six, 46, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Um, and so sometimes we just simply battle just the fact that we're human. I would say that 
that is not a bad thing. Like the fact that you're a, a, a human being who needs sleep is not sinful, right? Um, but it's just a reality, you know, and then those things are, are going to be things that I hope instead of discouraging us, remind us of our dependence upon him. Like it's when I'm needy and when I experience that neediness that, that I turn to him knowing that I can do nothing without him. All right. So now I want to get into what's unique about the world that we live in now. So all of that is what every Christian in every generation has struggled with. Every Christian, when it comes to prayer, has struggled with unbelief, has struggled with distraction and busyness, has struggled with their own human limitations. We live in a unique age. So over and over again, we see these warnings in Scripture about the world. And it's interesting because in one breath, you have like particularly John who will say, God so loved the world. And then in the very next breath, he says in a different letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. So tell me, what does he mean by that? How could God love the world and then God, God tell his people, oh, you better not love the world or the things in the world. Have you ever thought about that? Isn't that weird? Which one? Like, am I, are we just kind of schizophrenic here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the Bible talks about the world in different ways. And so when we come to these passages of Scripture, we don't have this one static definition of this word that it must mean in every context, right? We look at the context and we determine this is what the world means here. It's clear that in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that God's talking there about the world and the people in the world and the nations and that God wants to save People in the world, the world is in, involving, you know, the universe that's made up of all these different people. But then when we read in these other passages, do not love the world or the things in the world. We're talking about a, like you said, systems, a good word, a world system that is anti-God, that wants to negate God's purposes, that works in conjunction with with spiritual forces that are arrayed against God. Uh, and we can see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, Dan's favorite chapter in the Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, because if you've ever noticed, it winds up in almost every worship service, Ephesians 2. We're going to read a passage of Scripture this morning, church, Ephesians 2. Just start counting. I'm just kidding. I like Ephesians 2 as well. And it says here in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, in whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh. So what's really interesting about this passage, have you ever heard someone say, 
the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? That those are our enemies in the scriptures that Christians are having to combat. Jesus combats for us, but through us. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. All three of them are right here in Ephesians 2. You used to be like this, Paul says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. And you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So there they are. World, flesh, devil. Actually, world, devil, flesh, if we're going in order. We see this language used all the way through Scripture. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So you can't be a friend to the system of the world that is in rebellion to God and call yourself a friend to God at the same time. Right? Can't do both. So this is very similar to some of the language Jesus uses, like when he says you can't love God and money, all right? You can't you can't you'll be enslaved to one or the other, but you can't you can't love them both. First John two fifteen, I've already mentioned this one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The apostle says, Paul in Romans twelve two says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what does this all mean? Like, what is, I mean, I'm always curious to say, okay, well, what, what is the world in our context? Like, what, is, what shape does this take? And I often, the illustration that's often come to my mind is, we, well, my family, we go to the beach every year. And, you know, sometimes when you're at the beach, there's like the red flag or whatever. I don't know the colors. Anybody know the colors? But I guess if it's red, you're not supposed to get in the water. Josh, a Floridian. Okay, what's the one where it's just dangerous? Yellow. yellow. Okay, so it's like red light, green light, yellow. Right? It's, okay, it's just universal. Okay, I'm an idiot. Uh, well, if it's red, don't do it. Okay, so just don't. But if it's yellow, you may get in the water, and you may feel this pull. You know, and if you just sort of didn't didn't resist what would happen like if you just said i'm just gonna let this take me where it takes me where would you end up dead it's great i'm glad you said it that way because that's the case here too (laughs) you will end up dead if you let the world take you in its direction but like i've always thought about this because it's true. Like if you're just on a float on a flotation device uh, and you're just out there floating, it's eventually, you know, like you start seeing like the people you're with and you're like, they're like way down the beach now, you know, and it's, it's so hard to get back to them. That's the way the world works, right? If, if you live in this world and you offer no resistance to the course of the world, if you just live in, if you just drink it up, eventually you are going to be a long way away from Christ, right? I, by the way, and this is just a side note, this doesn't, well, it has something to do with prayer, but I just find ways to slip this in. This is one of the reasons why I believe with all my heart that the local church is so important for us because when we don't have these reminders in our lives, the world begins to look normal. You know? 
So you need all these weirdos to remind you that we're the normal ones. We're the ones following Christ. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is, we're supposed to be modeling the righteousness that God calls us to live, to live in. There's a, a, a biblical scholar named um, Greg Beal, and he defines worldliness in this way. He says, worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness to be strange. And that's always been helpful for me. Actually, I think that's really profound. Because I think that there are a myriad of ways that our world is trying to make sin look normal. And if you try to stand against that, you feel weird, you feel strange, you feel uncertain. And that's the world. Like that's the that's the crux of it. That's where the battle is taking place. And 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 what I what I'm trying to get at here, and you're you may be wondering at this point, where in the world is he going with this? I'm going here. Like I our world is organized to make prayer feel strange, seem strange, to make prayer difficult. Satan does not want you living in dependence upon God, upon Christ. It's the worst place. It's the last place He wants you. The course of this world takes you to trusting in yourself, to living in self-dependence, to autonomy, to not needing anyone else. And, and the Gospel is calling us back to know you need me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's not easy to do that. And what is it about our world particularly? C.S. Lewis placed the blame back in the 1940s. This was like 80 years ago. He called. He placed the blame for our current world. He called it the mechanization of the world picture. And I'm going to try my best to explain what he meant by that. But he said that somewhere in the last 200 years, we began to see the world as a machine. And this coincided with kind of a lot of good things, scientific revolution, there were all kinds of advances in technology and medical care and all these kind of things. But before that, the world was seen as a cosmic cathedral. So think about that. that you, when you looked out at the night sky and you looked at the stars, you, you wouldn't have thought... You wouldn't have thought, oh, the, that star is X amount of miles away, and that's this star, and we've named it, and uh, you know, on it's this t- temperature on that star, and like that's the way we think of it now, right? But but back then, when you would look up into the heavens, you would see mystery. You would see ways that the transcendent God was trying to communicate with you, that God was revealing Himself through His creation. And so there was something happening in the world that was beautiful, that had a symphony to it, that had an order to it, that had a purpose behind it. So, so right now when we go and look out, we see natural processes. And, and everything's according to laws. But before, our ancestors would interpret that same phenomena as those are mysteries beyond. That God is, is breaking through. He, he's showing us things through creation. He's teaching us things through creation. 
And Lewis believed that this was the whole downturn of Western civilization. Now, you might not agree with him. You can argue against it. I'm kind of sympathetic to it, personally. I just don't know how to go back. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there's any way. But think about this, if you want to think about a difference. Our ancestors' goal, when they looked at the world, was to worship the God who made it. Our culture, our generation's goal when we look at the world is to conquer it. Right? That, that's two completely different goals. To conquer it, to get it to do our bidding, or to worship the One who made it. And eventually, this led to a point, according to Lewis's narrative, where we believe that there's no meaning or purpose in the world beyond the individual, the autonomous individual. The individual is everything. When there's no mystery, when we feel like we already know everything, prayer begins to kind of seem pointless. If everything I have is available to me, if I'm the master of my own universe, if I'm the master of my own fate, if I can control everything around me, if my scientific advances can create the technology that can make me the master of the universe, I don't need God because I am God. Do you see where this is going? And maybe you go, oh, I've never been there. But you do. You are there because we live in this same world. <laughs> this is the world we live in. Like, you think about the technology we use, you think about your cell phone, you think about these things, like, do you use that as a tool? Or what ends up happening? Those things end up mastering us, don't they? And that's typically what happens. And I'm going to give us one more explanation. This is by a guy, a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. And he describes the change that's happened in our world. What I'm getting at, and what I'm trying to get us to see, I'm trying to go back to what I talked to y'all about at the beginning about the fish in the water. The way that we look at the world is not the same way that people looked at the world for the majority of world history. That's what I'm trying to get at. So maybe we need to ask the question, is the way I'm looking at the world right or is it wrong? Are there ways that I'm looking at the world that do not honor Christ, that do not lead me to flourishing, that do not enable me or encourage me to depend upon Him? Charles Taylor said we live in a secular age. And what he means by that is that we have constructed our world so that we, we derive all meaning and significance from within the system. So everything's imminent. And so, in one quote, he says, back in, there was a time where it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. So he says, for example, in 1500, everybody believed in God. You could not live in the world and not believe in God. Nobody thought, nobody would have ever questioned that there's a God. And he says, now... In our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable to not believe in God. We live in a world now where we are so, so cut off from any type of transcendent meaning that a lot of people, a majority of people maybe, 
find it completely natural to believe that there's no God in the universe. At some point in the last 500 years, which is a really short time when you think about the history of the world, it became possible to live in the world with no ultimate goals and no allegiance beyond individual human flourishing. This has never been done before. I mean, you study the history of the world, this has never been tried. Where everything is enclosed. All meaning is right here in front of me. I can just get everything I need from Netflix and chilling. This is it. We live in this enclosed system when our time is even quantified. Not in any way that's connected to the divine, but it's quantified by how much stuff I can get done in a day. I don't need anything beyond it. And if we live in the machine, where does prayer fit? That's the question. I don't think there's a place for it. So the, the, the point that I'm trying to get at tonight as we begin this, and the, tonight's unlike any other night that we'll have. I mean, I, I understand this is weird, but I really want us to know what we're up against. And what I want us to understand is that we're up against the world. <laughs> we're up against our own flesh, and we're up against Satan. And that takes, that takes some very specific shapes because of the world that we live in right now. And it's going to make prayer it's going to make prayer difficult. But by the grace of God, the things that are difficult are not done in our own strength, right? They're done according to God's spirit working through his people. And so the fact that it's difficult shouldn't change anything. So next week we're going to look at the praying king Jesus' prayer life. 5-4, we're going to look at Jesus' teachings on prayer in the Gospel of Luke because Luke's Gospel has teachings from Jesus on prayer that are not found anywhere else in the Bible. The other Gospels don't have some a couple of them. Then we're going to look in Acts at the Holy Spirit in prayer. That's, we're going to look at, that's going to be in Luke as well. And then we're going to look at the mission in prayer and we're going to we're going to have at least 15 minutes to pray at the end of every one of those and then on the last night May 24th um we are just going to pray. We're going to have it set up to where we're praying for specific things in groups uh and we're just going to pray in light of all the things that we've talked about and learned together. So, that's where we're going. Any questions or comments? Thoughts? Chris? You got a question? Josh? You've been so quiet tonight. Calling you out. Yeah. The 
Yeah, I mean, so you if y'all heard ever like if you've ever took a philosophy class, you've probably heard of like Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher. You know, the kind of behind a lot of the Hitler ideas and stuff. Um, you know, he made the pronouncement. I don't remember what year it was, but I mean, early or late nineteenth century, that God is dead. And what's interesting is that people thought that, like, when we hear that Nietzsche said God is dead, like, we think, well, he was just a really bad person. But no, he, what he was saying was that Western civilization has come to a point where we don't live as if we need God anymore. It was a cultural assessment. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't declaring God dead. He was, he was pointing out the way we live, that we don't need him anymore. And honestly... I think he he's right in terms of the culture that that that's where that's where we were going, you know. Of course, God's not dead. I mean, but but, and I think that that's the way a lot of people think. I think there's a whole lot of streams that feed into that. But I think it's not just ideas. I also think it's habits. It's the way we live. It's our dependence on machines. Now, you, I'm not Amish. I'm not saying we need to all go live on a... It would be great. We could all go, Brad, where are you getting land? Your family want to donate? We'll just build the Ashland compound. And we'll live off the land. You know, I'm not saying that we have to do that, but, but I do think we need to recognize the dangers of the world. And, and, and I think there are small ways that we can just be more human. And be less dependent on machines, you know, like having meals together is one, you know, one of the things that I've not done yet, but one of the things I'm inspired to do from C.S. Lewis is just going on walks, you know, like slowing yourself daily to the pace of your own two feet and walking and observing and being in in creation, you know, things like that. I mean, there's a million different things you could do, but I think those types of practices, I think, are key to kind of combating this machine-like approach. Our imaginations, like even if, if you, listen, if you, I could go on and on about this, I know I need to end, but I'm going to nerd out for a second. If, if you just analyze the language and the way we talk about the world, we use machine language to even describe ourselves. Like my brain's a computer, you know, like there's just all these little subtle ways that we talk that are not humanizing and that that affects the way we think about the world in ways that we would never understand. I mean, all of these are ways that we need to observe just the water that we're swimming in. So I know tonight was a little bit, a little bit abstract and it's going to get way different next week, but thank you for being here and bearing with me. Because I, this is stuff that um, I've been thinking about for a while, and um, really a lot of this is, as you can tell, I've I committed to teach a class on C.S. Lewis back in the fall, two classes on C.S. Lewis, one for high schoolers and one for middle schoolers, and I've never in my life just taken one author and just 
read their works for a whole year before. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing. And a lot of this has come from that. My, my imagination has been sparked by his, his critique of the world. And I just can't imagine what he would think about the world today. You know, he was critiquing like he didn't want, he never owned a car, never knew how to drive. You know, like that was his way. Um, but, you know, I can't imagine what he would think of the world and the direction it's gone today. And I'm not saying technology's bad. I am saying that we've got to just be a little bit more astute and and understand the effect of these things.